The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I'm so thankful to be here. And just to tell you just a little bit, I know if you're like me, like my husband loves sports, and I always tell him there are several things about sports. I don't, I mean, I like to play them in my own, you know, my mind, but um, <laughs> I, the only way I'm really interested in it is if I know something about one of the players and I find out, like, especially if I find out, like, he has a baby that had spina bifida and he loves the baby and he loves his wife, <laughs> and I hear some really good story, then I'm for the team. But I don't, if I hear something horrible about the person, I don't care. I remember when I heard about Lance Armstrong. Now, if he's like your brother. I'm sorry. But <laughs> when I heard something bad about him, it's like, I don't care. I don't care that he's winning. I don't want to see him. I don't want him on my TV. I don't want him in my house. Um, that, and that was horrible. That was kind of mean. But that's, you know. So I'm saying this just to share so you cannot like me, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but really just a little bit to share my heart um, of my passion and what God has done for me. Um, my husband and I have been in education for most of our lives. He, what, he has his doctorate in accounting. Um, yeah, a doctorate in accounting. He's kind of a boring person, but I like boring. Like he's just very even and um, doesn't get real excited about things, but then he doesn't get upset about things either. It's just, and he's very logical. In fact, our first major marital problem, and I'm a counselor now. I actually have a counseling practice out of my home, but probably because we went through so many hard times. But this is why, <laughs> because I was telling him that I just felt like he wasn't home enough and that we hadn't been together, and I'm crying, you know, this new wife. I'm so upset we're not together. And this was back before they had cell phones and stuff. So we pulled out his Lincoln day. You remember when those Lincoln day timers were so popular? And he pulled it out. And, and he was serious. Like, he wasn't, this wasn't a joke. He really thought this was going to be good for me. He pulled it out and proceeded to flip through it and tell me when we were together. Well, because that doesn't. On Monday, we were together from so-and-so, and my mouth is just hanging open. Like I, he, Now he's embarrassed that he did that. Um, so, But that was accountant in him. He likes numbers, and I don't, I'm numerically challenged, but I like words. He likes numbers, so we just don't communicate, I guess. Um, but going through that, um, anyway, we're in education for a lot of years, and then he actually was the president at a college in Florida, Clearwater Christian College. Some of you may have heard of that in Tampa. So we were there for 10 years. And then the past year, I guess he got tired of all the education part and decided to do church and become a pastor. Um, but actually, all through, all along, he started going to seminary and taking theolo um, theolo um, classes in theology. And he was just real excited about that. And he just kept saying, I education we've always been in parachurch organizations or in education and he said I just God was just really putting a passion in him to be in a church setting um, but he wasn't he didn't really feel like God was having him be a senior pastor a preaching pastor so we're at a church in Greenville South Carolina it's called Heritage Bible Church and he is an executive it's called the executive pastor so he is over the elders and over over the he handles everything except the preaching um, and he's been doing that for a year now, and he loves it. He tells everybody, and I know that's true. He's like, this is, I just love it. I love ministering through the church. This is just the best position I've ever had. So he loves it, and we're thankful for that. Um, 
while we were in education, I love college-age kids. I love young people, and I found myself working a lot with high schoolers, even in college kids, and then just doing a lot of counseling and speaking with some of the things that I was learning. Um, and so that just naturally led to this past year, and then before that I started taking actually um, counseling classes at Reform Theological Seminary in Orlando, and then I was taking some at Westminster in Pennsylvania, just kind of cherry-picking different courses. And then that, with my experience, um, there was a man in Greenville, South Carolina, who does a lot of counseling and has a big counseling practice, and I loved his philosophy. His philosophy is that really counseling should mainly be done through the church, through the local church. So what he does, he'll meet with someone for a couple times, and then he'll say, I want you to find someone from your church who will be a mentor to you. Bring them to the counseling session. I'll counsel you in front of them. And then the ongoing work is done through someone within the local body. So that's um, the philosophy I have. So I do a lot of counseling, but I do that same thing. A lot of churches in the area, um, some Skyping, I will counsel them, but then I'll ask them to find somebody in their local church who would be an ongoing mentor to them. Um, so I don't really do the ongoing counseling as much. Um, but because I've worked with young people so much, and I mainly work with 20-year-olds and high schoolers, I, I, my husband and I um, love that age. So I feel like we have our finger pretty much on the pulse of what's happening with the younger generation and what's going on. And I really just try to tell people that, you know, this is the next generation coming through. And there are a lot of things it's easy to just say we don't like because it's tradition. And that's why I'm saying this to say when we talk about God's word, we're going to talk about foundational truths that stand strong no matter what the culture and allow the culture to change, but those truths don't change. But you have to know what those truths are because if you start adding to those truths, your opinions and your ideas and your traditions, and you, you see them as being just as important at those, as those truths, what will happen, especially as you get older, you'll, your, your ministry with other people will start becoming marginalized because you won't be able to accept them. I have young people tell me this all the time, young people who love God passionately and will say, sometimes I feel like with the older people, yes, they'll love me and they want to help me. If my music is their music, if I dress the way they want to dress, if I do this, then they're willing to help me. And we're going to talk about that. Um, and there are just a lot of changes that are taking place, but there are a lot of great things that are happening, and I'm really excited. My husband and I are very excited about how the gospel is moving into the hearts and lives of young people, but we'll also talk about this, and I'll share this, that no generation gets it right, and the reason why I say that is because there's too many people on the pendulum. Like if you picture one of those pendulums on a clock and then picture a whole generation hanging on it, all those people, that's too many people on it for it to stop swinging. So it comes all the way over here, and maybe one generation substitutes the gospel for moralism, um, and then it swings over here, and another generation substitutes the gospel with emotionalism, and it's more about their emotions. So we'll discuss all these kinds of things in the sessions that we have. That's my heart, um, preparing another generation coming through um, to love God passionately. And the things that I say... Um, I want to share this. When we talk about the foundational truths, it doesn't matter if you're young here. It doesn't matter if you have gray hair, if you have 20 kids, if you have zero kids, if you're wishing you had kids, you're wishing you didn't have kids, <laughs> you're wishing you were married, you're not married, you're, you know, everybody's wishing you were married, and all those things. It doesn't matter. 
because when we talk about these foundational truths that we're going to hit, the message of the gospel and grace in our lives, which we cannot hear enough and repeat it over and over and over, um, that you can take your circumstances, your God-given, sovereignly ordained circumstances, and you can take the truth and have that cover the facts of your life without it being, you know, this does not, this isn't relative to me. It's relative to all of us. Um, another thing I want to share is that the fact that we are all here, there are some of you right now who are going through a lot of heartache. I mean, deep, deep-seated heartache. Some of you, it's of a nature where other people know. Um, but there are some of you that are going through some very hard things, and because of the circumstances of it, other people here don't even know how difficult it is. It might be circumstances involving children, other people, your work. It could be that there are some of you right now that are suffering because of your own sin and the lack of victory, that you're not living in the victory that Christ has given you, and this sin is just weighing you down at this moment, and you are just looking for gospel grace and Christ's blood to cover you. And I pray that this will be a weekend of just running to the cross and receiving forgiveness for that. Some of you are going through heartache just... You're, you, you are in a spiritual warfare right now, and there's no way to explain it except we are in a spiritual warfare, and it's really rough with you right now, some of you. It could be something that's in your mind, it's, and it's, uh, it's your mind fighting against what or your emotions, working against and belying the very truth that you know is factual and you can't seem to get it straight. Um, I have people ask me all the time as a counselor, do I believe in mental illness? And I always answer it this way. I say we're all mentally ill because of the fall. Of course, I believe in it. You're mentally ill. I'm mentally ill. It, it's called sin, and it was the fall, and we're mentally ill. But on a scale, it's a continuum. There are people that are on the healthy side of being mentally ill. And then there are people that are all the way, I mean, all of you fall somewhere on this continuum. And when you get all the way over here, you get really desperate. And sometimes there's such serious stuff, you need help. And you might even need some medical help to get to the point that you can claim God's grace in your life and even think straight. Um, and then some of you, most people, I say, are somewhere in the middle where intentional gospel living in the word, pursuing Christ and, and running hard after him and memorizing scripture, and just falling before the Lord, and not looking at yourself, but looking at the finished work of Christ, doing that intentionally day after day, and we're going to talk about that, um, will be enough for you to be able to take each day at a time, and go through the next day, and it still doesn't mean that the torment's going to be gone. The, what does the Bible say? This world, you will have trouble, and some people have more trouble than others. And it also says it's going to shake you, and it says this world is like a woman in travail. We are waiting for the coming of the Lord. We serve an unsatisfied Redeemer. He is not satisfied until he redeems everything, and he's in the process of redeeming this world. And we are in the process. Sanctification is really nothing more than, uh, than our learning to possess our possessions, they are ours in Christ. We know that. If you are a believer, all the riches of Christ are yours. But do you really 
possess your possessions? Do you realize you have all of them? They're yours. But until you get to heaven, you are, it, because of the sin and, and, and what's in this world and our fallen nature, all of those things, we don't know what it means to fully possess all those possessions. Um, I had a friend that recently died of cancer, and I just remember right I mean, as, the, the, as cancer was just eating away at her body and the ravages of that on her body, I'm just, you know, this is just Satan's last hurrah. When, when, when a believer is going through a death, and sometimes it can be really excruciating, and some of you have seen people waste away to nothing. It's ugly. That is Satan's last hurrah in that person's life. And then now they're with God. And I was thinking when she died, I just thought she now possesses all her possessions. She knows the riches that are hers in Christ. But that is what sanctification, that's our lives here on earth. It's every day fighting for that joy, not in our own strength, but in Christ. And we have an enemy that doesn't want it. And we have the enemy, the flesh, and our devil all fighting against us to make sure that we're not joyful and he doesn't want us to, it's, it's warring against our soul that is life here. So there are some of you who are going through that torment in a really raw way. Um, and there are some of you that are going through really great times right now. Maybe you found out you're having a baby or you've just won the lottery or something. And you're, this is just a good time for you. You have been blessed, just like the people who are going through hard times have been blessed. But you've been blessed in a way that as a human, it's easy to feel the blessing of God and to see his goodness in your life without having to say, God, I know you're good. This is, this is hurtful, and though you slay me, I will trust you because I know your goodness. Some of you are going through things where it's easy to do that. It's like, wow, this is the blessing of God, and, and I'm enjoying it. Um, so I don't know what you're going through right now, and I don't even know why you're here. Some of you might be here because you're the pastor's wife, and you thought that was like a good thing to go since you're telling everybody else. And you might even be someone you don't like ladies' retreats. You've been to them, and you just think ladies act all weird when they get together. <laughs> and you don't think it's funny, and they play stupid games like icebreakers. And you don't like that, and you don't like sleeping in a room with other women. And, and you're just like, that's just strange. But you're trying to act like you do because you think it's the thing to do. That's okay. That's, I, didn't, I didn't go to these. Th I mean, my mom would drag me to ladies' retreats, and I always didn't like them. But the reason why I didn't like them, because I felt like every time she would, my mom would take me to retreats, I said, Mom, you always took me to retreats where the ladies were, like, super sweet. Like, they were just so ladies and I remember one said don't one said don't think I'm not sinful too I've had bad thought from time to time and I was just like oh my word you had a bad thought from she had a bad thought oh wow <laughs> we are so much alike I connect mom <laughs> um, so I, I just didn't, I didn't like, I didn't like them because I just thought I'm not relating to this. This is just, this is not my life and I have a heart. I want to do right and I want to grow in grace and, and I love the word and I'm trying to say, but this is just, this is just not, I'm not being produced into a person like these women that are in front of me. So I don't know what your thought is about ladies retreats, but all I'm going to say is you're here and God knew that. And it's sovereignly ordained that you are right where you are. And it's sovereignly ordained that the woman that's with you in your room, 
the one you didn't really want, but that you were given. It's sovereignly ordained that she is the one that you were supposed to have. And um, it's just, it's God's doing. And he does all things well. And he's perfect. And his ways are good. And they're right. And they're pure. And they're just. And all of them are for the end goal of our bringing honor and glory to him as we become more and more like him. And we die to self and allow Christ to live through us. So he has us. I mean, the venue of God in his word, in, P- in Peter, First Peter, it says, and after you have suffered a while, I will strengthen you. It is the venue of suffering that he uses. Um, Joni Tata, I love her quote that says, suffering is like the sheepdog nipping at our heels, driving us down the road of Calvary where we otherwise would not go. And that is what suffering does. It's like it's a sheepdog just keep making sure we keep going to the cross, going to Christ, looking to him. So we're all here because this is sovereignly ordained by God, and we don't want to miss what he has for us. Um, If you don't mind, let's go ahead. I I know. Don't you hate that when pastors or preachers get up and then they've talked forever and then they go, okay, let's pray and begin? Has that ever happened to you? And you think... (laughs) Are you serious? They're just now starting? Um, I know you're probably thinking that. I am going to pray. I'm not going to go a lot longer, so I don't, don't want you to worry. But let's go ahead and pray. Our gracious Redeemer, we are so thankful to you for your incredible goodness to us. We praise you as a God of glory. We praise you as the great one and the Redeemer of our souls. And Lord, though there was nothing we brought to the table, you loved us. You set your love upon us, and you opened our eyes so that we would love you and rejoice in you, and we praise you for that. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for this time, and as we look into your word, may it change us. May we not be the same as um, when we leave this retreat. May we love you more. May we be more passionate about honoring you. May we be more excited about the riches that are ours, and may we be more fully in possession of the possessions that are ours. And may we have a better knowledge of what you have done for us, that's a knowledge that's in our heart, not just in our head. Father, we we love you. We're thankful that you love us. Thank you for your goodness in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Foundational truths. Let's talk about a few foundational truths. Um, We're all theologians, and theologians aren't those people who just go to seminary or those men in your life that go to seminary or women or whatever. Theology is just the study of God, and we are all theologians. You're either a good one or you're a bad one, (laughs) and you either know about God because you're studying him and you're studying the word, Or you're not a good one because you don't have a good knowledge of God. And it could be that you've just recently become a child of God and you haven't had a lot of time to learn. So you might be thinking, I'm really not a great theologian, but I sure, you know, if if, if, if you're a redeemed child of God, you'll just find yourself starting to pant more and more after knowing about him. And that will be the passion of your heart. And so I would say to you, I want to stir within you the desire to be a good theologian that you want to be the best theologian that you can be, a studier of the word, not so you know facts. 
I have been by many, many seminary students who are so excited about all the knowledge and the head knowledge they're getting, and they show little grace of the very thing they talk about. And they sit there and talk about people and cut other ministries down and just, it, it, it just, I mean, I've seen that before where it's just, and here they are talking about grace and you're like, that's grace. This is not, this is becoming more about your knowledge of the scripture instead of it changing your heart and where you're living it out. And that's what we want. We want to know God and know him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection so we want to be good theologians. And one of the ways, one of the important things about being a good theologian is that we understand foundational truths that will change us and that we keep clinging to and we keep going back to. When I'm giving these foundational truths, one thing that I want you to be thinking about as we talk about this, um, and when I say foundational truths, I'm talking about the fact that God is sovereign or that his word is inerrant. We'll discuss that. But... Um, when I talk about foundational truths, as, as we're talking about these, think of this fact that everything you struggle with, everything I struggle with, when I am counseling, and I'll spend a lot of time, I hope you don't get tired of that, but I'll spend a lot of time telling you when I'm counseling something, this is someone, this is what I point out to them. But that everything that we struggle with as a believer really goes down to the fight against unbelief. It's a battle against unbelief. Because as I talk about these foundational truths, I, I doubt there will be anybody in here that would not affirm them. I mean, if I'm talking about God's sovereignty, and I would say, do you believe that God is sovereign? He is the blessed controller over everything. He is not an impotent God. He is a powerful God. Things don't take him by surprise. He is in control. He's an almighty God. He ordains things to take place. He allows things to take place, and it's all orchestrated on him. If I say that, I would think that most of you would affirm that wholeheartedly. But to believe that day in and day out in practicality with the way that you live when you get stuck with someone in a room that you didn't want to be stuck with and to say God is sovereign, that's a fight against unbelief. And so we have the scripture saying, Lord, help my, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. So it's every day, Lord, please give me the grace. And grace is not only the desire to do right, it's the power to do right. And that comes from God. We don't work that up. It's from him. There's nothing we do to get that. He asks us to ask for it, but that's God's, God's goodness giving us the desire and the power to do right. And as he gives us that grace, we ask him, Lord, please give me the grace to believe and an intentional woman knows that's her fight. So I want you to know that's your fight. As we talk about these foundational truths, it's probably not that you need to fight believing them and affirming them as I talk about them. I think you will. But it's the fight to believe them 24-7. But you have to know what they are so we can get into that battle and we can fight with some intelligence. Okay, foundational truths that support your situation and your need and whatever it is that you're going through. And that's why I say to people, counseling isn't about getting more and more classes and learning more and more. I mean, I learn things all the time that are helping me um, in dealing with different situations. But it doesn't matter if I'm talking with a high schooler who's into cutting 
or I'm with someone who is addicted to sex and having issues with that, it, it doesn't matter what I'm dealing with. I'm giving them foundational truths. If they're believers, this is where they are. And let me mention this too. I always like to look at people this way, the whole world this way. There are only two kinds of people. There are people who are redeemed and are believers and have a relationship with Christ and his beloved, or they are not believers. If someone is not a believer, I do not expect them to act certain ways. So I don't sit there with someone on an airplane and argue about something like abortion when the person isn't even a believer or they're not. I mean, why would I even argue about that? This person has needs far more than my wanting them to become a moral person and show a higher level of morality. They just need Christ. And if Christ is not working in their heart, I know that. So I don't need to keep beating them over the head. And, and I can just tell if, if they, they say, wow, you know, I've been thinking about this. Would you tell me more or whatever? Um, if they're not interested, they're not interested. Um, and I say there are two kinds of people. So I don't, don't have expectations for people that are not believers. Actually, anything that someone that is not a believer, that whatever they do that's moral is God's common grace. It, it's just, it's his common grace. So they're either not saved or they are a believer. And if they're a believer, if they truly are a Christian, God is more committed to growing them than you are. Um, if your child that you have at home, no matter how wild and wooly he or she might be acting right now, if you believe that child has confessed salvation and you really believe that that child knows Christ and they're struggling, God is more committed to the growth of that child than you are. And he actually he's not just committed to it. He's already done it. He's promised that that work has been done. He is perfecting that which concerns you. You won't see the total perfection until the child's with him in glory, but God is committed to doing that, and that's the hope that you have. So you give that child lots of hope. So when you think of it that way, no matter who you're dealing with, what they're going through, if you treat them as a believer, you give them hope because that's what they're losing. They're losing hope, and some of you have lost hope, and I want to give you hope, and I'm going to talk about that, hope. Um, I want to give you the hope of Christ that God is committed to growing you, that he loves you, that it's not about your love. We just sang one of my favorite songs by Horatius Bonar. I love that song, Not My Hands, Not What My Hands Have Done. It's not what they do. This is not what it's about. It's not my love, but your love. It's not my faith, but God's faith. It's not me. It's Christ. And so I want to give you the hope of Christ in you, that hope of glory. When you feel like I'm just keep messing up. Um, and that's why we're going to look at these foundational truths. Okay, number one, that God's sovereign. I think we've mentioned that one. He is in control. God is sovereign. There is no other foundational truth to me. I went through um, kind of a crisis. I don't know. It was just kind of a mental crisis or something where I was trying to figure everything out. Some of it was the way um, God was presented to me, um, where it seemed like it was more works-based um, and a lot of legalism. Um, and then you strip that away, and I'm trying, to f I'm, I'm trying to understand how is God sovereign, but then you say this, and you know how you go through all those. I mean, some of you do and some of you don't. Some of you are like, 
I don't know. I wonder why people go through that. What's wrong with my mind? I don't, I don't even think of that. Well, for those of you that do go through that, I went through that. And so I started reading lots. I read, I had a good friend that had me read John Owen. So I just read almost everything I could from John Owen. And I felt like his mind, I finally got it. I was like, okay, I get it. Okay, this makes sense. I now understand this and I can accept this. And it all helped, it just helped me to understand that God is sovereign over everything. Um, And that is the foundational truth that you might just need to keep saying to yourself over and over and over. And the way I look at it, just even logically, either he's sovereign or he's not. Either he's all-powerful or he's not. And if he is a God that, oh, no, I can't believe that happened. Oh, I'm wringing my hands. That's not a powerful God. And that's not the God that we have. So God is sovereign. That the message of the gospel is that I'm a great sinner, but I serve a great Savior. The message of the gospel that I'm a great sinner, but I serve a great Savior. That's just a foundational truth that I sin more than I can even imagine, but I have a Savior who loves me more than I can imagine. That's a foundational truth that you want to cling to. That's the message of the gospel. And if you at all are seated here and you think your sin is somehow not as heinous as somebody else's and that your sin is somehow just not as bad as somebody else's, you do not have an understanding of your sinfulness and your sinfulness in front of a holy God who hates sin. And to understand that there was nothing you brought to the table, that you were at enmity with God, but he set his love on you and allowed you to be now seated at the table as a friend and no longer an enemy. And that was God's doing, not yours. And yet that sin is what brought you there. That is, that is the sin. You, 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 we are not perfect And we're on this earth, even our thoughts. I mean, I remember one time I was telling somebody, I said, sometimes I wonder, do I even have a good motivation? You know, do I I even have a pure motivation? Do I ever do anything totally for God? Even the spiritual things I do, do I find myself like, oh, I hope somebody sees that. Or, oh, this will be good. Or, oh, this is really nice. And, um, oh, and and you know, when you do, you're just like, ooh, I I just don't like this. I just, I want to be pure before God. And I want to just, I want him to live through me and I keep getting in the way. Well, that's what the Bible says. For now we see through a glass darkly. And a lot of us have hot air. So we make that dark glass real foggy too (laughs) with all our talking. Um, But God's changing us. And we're not the same each day. We're changed from glory to glory. And he's, it's, it's just a glorious thing. Um, but we know that our sin is awful in the sight of God. And we know we've all fallen short of his glory. An illustration that I like to use to help you if you're t- in your temptation to ever think that somebody else is a little more sinful than you. Um. Comparing ourselves with each other, and that's why Paul says it's not wise, because when you compare yourself against others, there's only two things that are going to happen. Either you're going to get arrogant because you're going to come out better, humanly speaking, or you're going to come out worse, and then you're going to be depressed. So you just, it's just so unwise to do. But I like to look at it this way. If 
meeting the glory of God and matching his glory and reaching his glory and not falling short of the incredible glory of God. Let's pretend that, just for illustration's sake, that that's the Grand Canyon. Picture the Grand Canyon and say matching the glory of God means we have to jump from one side of the canyon over to the other. That meets the glory of God. Okay, that's like the law. We can't do that. We have somebody that already did it. Christ did that for us. He jumped the Grand Canyon for us. But comparing yourself to someone and thinking you're better than them is like having somebody that jumps five feet, or maybe you've got a little more muscle and you jump six feet, or somebody jumps two feet and you're crying because I jumped two feet. They're so much more godly than me. I mean, you are all so pitiful. It doesn't matter. We're all like, just fall into the ground. It's horrible. And that's where we need to fall, at the foot of the cross. So you, you just, it's just crazy to compare. And the more you see God's glory and you understand how wonderful and how rich and how omnipotent and, and omnipresent and that he's all-powerful and you think of all of those things and that he's perfect and his law is perfect and his ways are perfect, you just understand, wow, Lord, I just don't deserve you. And every day I'm just so thankful that but by your grace, there's not anything out there that I could not have done with the right situation and the right provocation. But the only reason I didn't is because you sovereignly arranged for that not to happen. Or if I'm not even tempted that way, it's not because I'm great. It's because you sovereignly allowed me not to have that temptation. Um, And how does that affect you now in not comparing? Some of you in your sanctification process are like mudders. And when I mean mudders, I mean mud, like M-U-D. You're a mudder. You seem to take two steps forward and you know, you fall in the mud and then you have to get hosed off with the word and everybody else around you and cleaning you off. And then every once in a while you take a nosedive off the abyss and everybody's there grabbing you and pulling you up. And then you take a couple steps and you fall again. And, and maybe you're like that. And let's say I've just described you how you feel in your Christian life and you have a sister or a brother who's not a mutter, they're what I call the gazelle, the deer. Like they just leap through the spiritual forest. <laughs> I'm just growing in grace. And oh, they're just so Christ-like. It's so disgusting. And they're just so, you know, they're just growing. And you're in the same family. And you can start finding yourself just being, why, why is it so hard for me? Why is this so difficult? And I guarantee any parent here that has multiple children that are older, you know what that's like to have one child that just, life's just easier for them outwardly. And the other, it just seems so difficult. It doesn't matter. Here's my point. It doesn't matter if you are a mutter or you are the gazelle. You both need Christ. It doesn't matter If you have a difficult time, but you keep claiming God's grace and you allow yourself to be cleansed by the word and you ask for forgiveness and you have repentance, it doesn't matter that this person over here doesn't seem to have to go through that as much. Both of you are in desperate need for Christ. And not only that, but in the end, we're all going to be the same, totally and perfectly like Christ. Someday we will be perfect. 
and we won't stand in heaven before our King of Kings and Lord of Lords looking at each other going, you're a mutter. Get to the back. It's going to be all about God and all his glory. And if we're believers, whether you're a mutter or you are a gazelle, we all have that hope of eternal life and being transformed. And I am just convinced of this, that even that sanctification process is God-ordained. Now, I just told someone not to like, we have two children that we adopted when I could just, like, get, I could speak for months on them. Um, we have one that's 24 and one that's um, 18. She's about to be 18. Both of them come from very, very different backgrounds, different families. Both of them are as, on any continuum, they're both dangling off the opposite ends. One's very, very quiet and very contemplative and brilliant and wants to do everything just right, comes from a family of doctors and, you know, just real serious and would never disobey and wants to do everything just right and perfect. Then we have another, we have the other one. Way over on the other side, couldn't stand school, just life's fun, let's just play all the time. We don't know what we're going to do with life. Um, and it's just so different. And I see that God allowed there to be tough times with one that the other doesn't have and that one. And sometimes you could sit there and think, why, why does life have to be so hard for this one? I mean, ever since they're little, why is it just, why does he have to suffer consequences of birth mom who didn't care for herself and, and, and drugs and things like that? And, and life's just so difficult and is processing and, it just really has been very, very painful and challenging. And why is one, it just seems like it's easier. But you know what I realize? The one has a tendency to more, more be a pharisaical kind of a person, and I do everything right, and I'm very moral, and has a harder time understanding this is God's grace, and not looking at a sibling and thinking, what is his problem when you just grow up? And then the other one, there has own, it's, it's just like I tell people with the adoption, there's no gene pool. There's like five wild, it's like wild fun park with different <laughs> gene pools all over the place. And it's God ordained. And I don't understand why he does what he does. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. I just know that my husband and I are so thankful for everything we've been through. And it has broken us and taught us that life isn't just do A and you get B, and it's so much more complicated than that. And there are people who struggle deeply with things because of the fall and our fallen nature and our, our, our body that wars against us and even our minds sometimes. It's just complicated. And it is like a woman in travail here on earth. But the one that does better and outwardly all right, the more pharisaical kind. Now, I have changed this way. I've told people if I ever adopted more kids or had kids, um, I would, I'd be praying, oh, Lord, give me a Pharisee. Oh, they're so much easier. Just give me a Pharisee. <laughs> I mean, it's either the Pharisee or the really bad kind. So, like, just give me a Pharisee. And then we'll just pray that God, it just makes you look better as a parent. Um, I'm, I'm teasing. <laughs> but... The, the point is, it's just Christ. He, he is the one that has to change us, and it's just his grace, um, and there's hope. Okay, I'm going to stop because I need to be done, but I want to read some verses on hope before we continue, and I should have mentioned this to you. I, Robin knows this. We talked about it. I'm a rabbit trail speaker. I, 
I'm really sorry to sequential people. Oh, <laughs> I really, I, I mean, really, I'm very sorry. But know that I had you in mind because when they ask me if they could pass out an outline, I always tell them no, 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 no. Do not give them an outline because the sequential women will freak out because they sit there, you all, you know you're the kind. You sit there and you're like, she didn't give three. What's three? What's three? What's three? What's three? What's three? What's three? What's, what's, what is it? What is it? What is it? Oh, okay. Okay, okay. And by then, I'm on the other page. Or I've decided to give a whole different message, you know, whatever. A whole different session. Um, so I am not a sequential person. My husband's very sequential. He likes his days ordered. And he likes to, I know where he's going to be at 4.30 in the morning. And he exercises at the same time. And in fact, I think it's kind of fun messing up his schedule. It's just, kind of, I love it. I told people, it's like, you know, I got, he thinks he has to work because this is his schedule, but I'm going to seduce him. This is going to be exciting. Um, I'm, I'm more random. Like, I just, random. And when I accepted my randomness, Honestly, it was the best thing that ever happened because God helped me to just start reading the word more in my own random way instead of trying to do it the way that all the little speakers, all the, and they were good Christian people that were talking to me. I mean, these were godly women that I wanted to be like, but they were all the kind that would get up at 530 in their bunny slippers and their coffee and sit in the same place every morning and would tell me that that's what I had to do and it just didn't work for me. So I just am more random, but I study all the time. I love studying the word. I love to read. I love to read good books. I love to read dead authors, like dead theologians. I like the dead ones the best. <laughs> because the ones who are living, you never know if they're going to mess up or they <laughs> say something. They say something that's weird, and then someone doesn't like them, or they had coffee with someone, and they didn't think that was a good person. So it just gets complicated. Um, but when you deal with the dead ones, then they, they are a little more lenient with you. Um, but you also know what they think. You get the bulk of their whole life. And I love that. And John Piper, I have done something that he said to do, and it's changed my life. He said, find someone and study the entirety of their life. Read all of them, and you will see how God has grown them. So I've done that with a Puritan. I studied him for several years. His name was Octavius Winslow. Robin would know because I always talk about him. But Octavius Winslow, he's my favorite Puritan writer. He is a contemporary of Spurgeon um, who writes like Spurgeon, but I think he actually brings the message to bear in an even more practical way, which how can you be more practical than Spurgeon? But he is. I, he's just practical. And his mom, Mary Winslow, has incredible writings. Another thing about going with the older ones, um, there's probably a nicer way to say that than old dead. I don't, I don't know how to say it. But um, one thing going with them, you can find almost all the writings for free online. Almost everything's online now. It's, you know, it's so outdated that it's, you, know, you don't have to even pay for it. Um, so Octavius Winslow is a good one. And then my last one was John Newton, and I've studied him for about two. And there's tons of stuff on John Newton, letters to his children, letters to all kinds of people. I mean, it's just amazing how much stuff is out there. And they were such good writers. Um, and to watch how God grew them. I was telling someone with John Newton it was particularly interesting because when he first got saved, he was kind of a maverick. I mean, he fought a lot. He fought with the Wesley brothers. He made a big deal about the Calvinism, Arminianism, and they're fighting all about it. And he is just so involved in that. 
toward the end, he stops. He actually has one of the Wesley brothers preach. He said he wanted them to preach at a funeral. And he actually comes along with that till toward the end of his life is when he finally says, there's only one thing I know, and that's this. I am a great sinner, and I serve a great Savior. And that was amazing for him to say that. If you haven't studied his whole life, you don't realize what an incredible quote that was. And to me, that was his way of saying, you know what, this is what it's reducing to. I'm going to stop acting like I know everything. And you can just see in his writings the softening and the humbling of understanding of how much he needs God in his grace. But I wanted to end with this. Oh, what was I telling you? Oh, the rabbit trail. Um, So there's no rhyme or reason. So you just have to kind of write. If you want to write something, just write it down. But don't try to do an outline. And and know that I will do things like this. I'll go, there are three reasons, and then I'll give you one. (laughs) Or I'll say A, and then I'll go D, and, and you'll miss B and C, and just don't worry about it. Just, you know, that's what I do. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you random people, we will have fun. We will go down, we will go down little bunny trails and have a great time and drag the rest of you with us. And my husband just is like, oh, okay. I had to get permission from him when I started talking about having, freeing you to love God, to be able to love the word more and get in the word. I told him, I said, honey, I really need to talk to women. I need, I need to tell them that it's not about devotion, like having that devotional time. Yes, if that's what you do, and that's good, but that doesn't work for everybody. And then they miss it, and then they think, oh, I can't do this. And I'm trying to free them to read the word more. For a sequential person, that was hard because his parents were very much into the word. When you would go into their bathroom in their house, Alexander Scorby would come over a speaker that was up in the corner. I'm serious. I thought that was really interesting. You flip on the light. And in the word, it was like, oh, whoa. Um, but they were just very, very godly family. It comes from a line, a very godly family, missionaries, just real passionate, serious people. And um, so he just thinks people should be like, you know, like they are. So you should have your devotions a certain time or you don't have them in every day. And so if he finally knows, he finally knows that that's true for people like him, but not me. Um, and you'll know if you're random or sequential how you clean the house. <laughs> if you are the kind that you have a little file, a three by five, okay, in January, I clean the curtains. In February, oh, ugh. And, and you go around and you do everything just right. I'm so proud of you. I, I love that you're like that. But what I do is I just walk through, and if it looks like it's going to walk away, oh, think I need to clean that. And then I start cleaning it, but then it reminds me of something. And then while I'm cleaning it out, I have to go call my friend because that just reminded me of a friend. And then while I'm talking to her, that reminds me of something else. And then I'll go, and nothing ever gets done. But I have fun. Okay, I just want to read these verses on hope. Um, Because when we talk about the foundational truths that the gospel, I'm a greater sinner, God's sovereign, that I wouldn't choose godliness if it weren't for his grace. I mean, that's a foundational truth, that I wouldn't do that. Any desire, I mean, I, I do this because of God. And that the love of God is what constrains me. Um, I'm not going to go through all the foundational truths that I have here, but I think you know what I'm saying about those. But I, I want to talk, I want to mention these verses on hope 
Because that is, when we take all these foundational truths and we say that our fight is really against unbelief, it's believing that God is sovereign, believing that his grace is sufficient, believing that he's all-powerful, and believing in the hope of the gospel, that he is changing us from glory to glory, and that he is going to take us with him. And look how many times that hope is mentioned in the word. I'm just going to read through these verses really quickly. And the reason why I'm just, I'm so passionate about this idea of hope is because when I'm counseling, I'm dealing with several people, excuse me, right now who are um, struggling with suicidal thoughts. Um, I have counseled someone that has committed suicide, and I don't treat this lightly at all. And I understand in a room this size, there could be somebody right now who just might even mentioning this. It's just deeply painful for you that you might have experienced something really horrible, a child or a spouse. Um, it could be that in a room this size, which I'm sure there would be, there are some of you that have struggled with suicidal thoughts. Um, Christians and you read any of the Puritan writers, any of the theologians of old, and they will talk about this. Suicidal thoughts can definitely happen with people who are believers. Their enemy is against us. Our minds can war against us. Um, I firmly believe, I, the, the person that I had dealt with that committed suicide, I'm telling you this was a major fight in that person's life. And they loved God. And it was horrible. They were on all kinds of medications and trying different things. Got all, I mean, it's just it's such a long story. Um, it's complicated. The mind is complicated. And sin complicates things. Um, but hope, when someone commits suicide a- as a believer, it is such, the thing that's so gut-wrenching about it and why it is Satan's last hurrah and why it's such an awful thing is because that person who should have hope and should have all hope has lost all hope and so they have believed the lie of the enemy and you can know truth in your head and still believe the enemy's lies and so it's tragic when someone commits suicide that's a believer because they have had the hope robbed from them And there are sometimes when people have struggled so hard that the people around them that love them, when they actually take their lives sometimes, all they do is just keep rejoicing that this person is finally over their torment. And as, as tragic as it is and as sinful as that act is to take your life, there's such torment sometimes with people for years and years and years. I know the one girl that's in our church, she's just in torment a lot. And we read scripture and we do lots of things and She's been in and out of the hospital and just lots of things. And sometimes she'll just cry. I mean, just sob. Like, why have I fought with this? She has a mother that's fought with it. I mean, there's kind of genetic propensities. It's just, it's sad. If you don't have that, you just thank God. You just, when you hear these things, you just say, Lord, thank you. Not, I can't believe it. You just need to just be humble and say, Lord, thank you. Every time you see something like that. But I want to read these verses on hope. Just an amazing hope that we have in Christ. Acts 24, 14 through 15. But this I confess to you. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Romans 8, 23 through 25. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not, is, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit in you may abound in hope. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 16 through 20, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hebrews 3, 5 through 6, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews six nineteen. we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Titus 2.11-13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasures, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. That's just a few verses with hope. I think God wants us to cling to hope. And we want to exalt and boast in that hope. That's what sets us apart from a world that's dying and has no hope. It's what sets us apart, the hope we have in Christ, and that needs to be our only boast. So as we talk about the foundational truths, we take those foundational truths and we rehearse them over and over because we know that there's an enemy that wants us not to believe. And we fight against that battle of unbelief, all of us, every day, wake up fighting against a battle, waging spiritual warfare of unbelief and clinging to that hope and say, Lord, give me grace 
to believe in the hope of eternal life, the hope of glory, that Christ is ours, and that that sanctification process, no matter how messy, I have hope and God is changing me. And if, he's, if I have hope and I believe someone's a believer, then I ought to be giving them hope. And you will know if you're giving somebody hope, if they leave you, if I'm talking to someone that you're dealing with and I say, do you have more hope after dealing with her? After she talked to you, do you have more hope? If they're like, no, I feel like I can't do anything right, we've blown it. And that's true for your children. I should be able to look at your children, and if I were to ask them, counseling them, do your mom and dad give you hope as a believer, or do you feel like I'm hopeless? Now, that stings, okay? That stings because that's hard to do, especially when you have – you're a teacher and you have kids that are messing up all the time or you have that one that's just constantly losing all their crayons or whatever it is that you have on the wall and they can't seem to keep anything together, even their body. And, and it's just hard to give them hope. And it's like, yeah, hope, all right. I'm going to strangle you. <laughs> Instead of hope in Christ, that's what we give as believers. It makes me sad when I see people that aren't believers almost doing better jobs sometimes at giving hope. And right now with all the fitness guru, you know, I mean, the fitness people out there and biggest loser, the big, you know, losing bukus of weight and they're so excited and this is a life. Do you know what? Yeah, that's inspirational to a point. But you know what? If that person doesn't know Christ, it doesn't matter how many pounds they've lost. Who cares if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? The biggest losing comes in not knowing Christ. And if you have Christ, you have the hope. And we win because of Christ, because Christ has won. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible love for us. Lord, may we be women of hope. May we fight for the joy that is ours in you and possess those possessions that are ours. May each day we grow from glory to glory. So, Lord, keep changing us. Thank you for your love for us and that grace that you pour over us that gives us the desire to do right and to bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, we want to be a people who live to the praise of your glorious grace. So, Father, we do believe. Please help our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, and you know what? I I think one of the questions that I gave for the group, and who knows if they even have time now to talk, because I've been probably yakking way too much. I won't even look at the time. But one of them, I think, is in Colossians and Ephesians. Is that one? I was asking why Colossians and Ephesians is helpful in your fight for joy. So I'll give you the answer real quickly, and you can talk about it. Um, The letters from Paul, What I love what he does, and I think most of you probably already know this. But in both Ephesians and Colossians, he first gives all, gives all the indicatives, meaning he just gives the truths about God and the gospel. He keeps telling the people over and over, this is who you are in Christ. This is what he's done for you. This is what his grace did for you. And then at the end of the letter, he addresses the imperatives of what they need to be doing. So he's saying, all right, now, like in Ephesians, the first three chapters, now that you know all this, now let me tell you what this should look like. Because Christ loves you. I don't want, don't steal anymore, rather work. So you can not only eat, but you can feed others. And don't lie anymore, rather tell the truth. But you have a motivation for that. And that's the wonderful thing about Colossians and Ephesians. In our fight for joy, it gives us the right motivation. Gospel motivation, um, not selfish motivation. Okay.